All right, guys, that's good stuff. Let's try the, uh, let's make sure on the charts one more time. Everybody get a chart when you came in. If you did not get a chart, let's see if you'd raise your hand. Yeah, we, we, we were missing some guys up here with charts. Um, what happened to our chart men? Sounds like a club. Um, yeah. What happened? To, is Lou back there somewhere? No, he's out there. Yeah, if, if you need a chart, if you'd raise your hand again, here, here they come. Yeah, some guys up here. And then we got it nailed. Good. All right. Well, <coughs> it's always a wise thing to begin with prayer. Don't you think? So let's... Um, Let's go, let's go to the Lord here. You know, I got a question. Who is it that puts water up here? I, I just want to say thanks. I appreciate you doing that. I can't figure out who's putting water in the back. You're doing that? I didn't know that. I, gosh. Well, thanks. That's great. You might stop at Krispy Kreme next time and <laughs> about six of those. Just enough for everybody to have three. Then we'd be happy, huh? All right. Father, thank you so much. That's really all we need to say, is just thank you for all that you have done for us, for all that you have given to us, for, um, for health to even come here tonight. Some of us are in better health than others, but we're able to come. Some of us have come from work because you have given us a job. Some of us weren't at work today because um, we're out of work. But even in the midst of this time where we're not being productive in the way that we would like, you're still meeting our needs, and for that we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're the one that gives us what we need. You give us strength to take care of our families, and when we are out of strength, you still take care of our families. For that, we thank you. There are times in life when we're strong and we are at our, our peak times of performance, and then we all begin to fade, and we get older, and our bodies get attacked and afflicted and we begin to deteriorate, and there's no one in this room who can escape that. But the psalmist said that you are the one who carries us until death. And then when we die, we immediately enter into your presence, for to be uh, absent from the body is to be present with you. Uh, for that hope and for that truth, we thank you. We have so much to be grateful for tonight. We have the Word of God to instruct us and to teach us. We have the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Uh, you have opened up our blind eyes when Christ came into our lives, and you have regenerated us, and you now give us spiritual eyes so that we can discern the truth that's in your book. Uh, the natural man does not discern. He does not understand the things of God. But you have worked supernaturally in our lives. Uh, you, have, you have redeemed us and saved us from sin, and you have saved us from ourselves. Uh, 
and you've given us a future and a hope. Every guy in here that bows the knee to you, we have a future and we have a hope. Now, Lord, again tonight, we want to learn from this king. Some of these guys are, are very foreign to us. Even some of our own presidents are foreign to us. We, we, we don't know the chronology. We don't remember the history, even of our own nation. We remember the important guys, but there's a whole string of them we don't know much about. That's sort of how it is tonight as we're looking at kings. But Lord, every man's life has a story, and every man's life has lessons. There's a reason these guys... These kings are in this book. Help us to uh, glean from this man's life tonight something that will instruct us as we sit here and read tonight. Uh, keep us on track. So many of these kings got off track. Uh, remind us, Lord, of what is true. Remind us of what is correct. Uh, remind us that uh, truth, by its very nature, is narrow, but it liberates us. Remind us that it always makes sense to trust you, even when circumstances cry out that we should not. Give us wisdom to be wise men. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I've been reading an uh, uh, interesting book this week called Flyboys. Maybe you've heard about it. It's, uh, it's new, but it's doing pretty well. And it's a story of some young pilots that were in the Pacific during World War II. And I'll just read off the, uh, off the book jacket, off the flyleaf. Over the remote Pacific island of Chichijima. Now, most of us are familiar with Iwo Jima. Chichijima was the island just to the north of Iwo Jima. Over the remote Pacific island of Chichijima, nine American flyers, Navy and Marine airmen, were sent to bomb Japanese communication towers. Well, they were shot down. One of those nine, just one, was miraculously rescued by a United States Navy submarine. The others were captured by Japanese soldiers on Chichijima, and held prisoner. And then they disappeared. When the war was over, the American government, along with the Japanese, covered up everything that had happened on Chichijima. The records of a top-secret military tribunal were sealed, the lives of the eight flyboys were erased, and the parents, brothers, sisters, and sweethearts they left behind were left to wonder. It's an amazing story. Um, sometimes governments do things they shouldn't do. But because there was a bill introduced and a law came into effect called the Freedom of Information Act, the transcripts of this military tribunal were released. Um, and so, after 60 years of mystery, James Bradley, the author, <clears throat> reveals the fate of the eight American flyboys, all of whom would ultimately face a moment in a decision that few of us can even imagine. What happened to eight of these nine pilots, one was picked up by a sub, 
But the other eight were tortured and were all beheaded by the Japanese officers. And then their um, uh, portions of their body were then eaten because that's a samurai tradition that when you conquer an enemy, uh, you cannibalize your enemy. And uh, so their livers were taken and, and eaten by officers. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievable uh, story. It goes on and says, Flyboys is a story of war and horror, but also of friendship and honor. It is about how we die and how we live, including the tale of the flyboy who escaped capture. Remember the one? A young Navy pilot named George H.W. Bush, who would one day become president of the United States. We've all seen pictures of Bush being fished out of the water. But did you know the story about his eight co-pilots, his eight companions, his eight comrades? Um, uh, all, of, all of them except one was beheaded, tortured and beheaded and cannibalized. Uh, the one exception was George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, interestingly enough, um, Bradley interviewed uh, President uh, Bush, and Bush was very open about his feelings and about his thoughts when he was on um, the thin back, which picked him up. Let me, let me read from the chapter called No Man's Land. George spent a month on the thin back, which gave him plenty of time to reflect on his brush with death. He would often stand the midnight to 4 a.m. watch while the sub was surfaced. Later, he recalled those reflective moments, and we quote George H.W. Bush here. I'll never forget the beauty of the Pacific, the flying fish, the stark wonder of the sea, the waves breaking across the bow. It was absolutely dark in the middle of the Pacific. The nights were so clear and the stars so brilliant. It was a wonderful and energizing time. It was a time to talk to God. I had time to reflect, to go deep inside myself and search for answers. As a, He was only 19 years old. People talk about a kind of foxhole Christianity uh, when you're in trouble and you're, you think you're going to die, and so you want to make everything right with God and everybody else right there in the last minute. But this was just the opposite of that for me. I had already faced death, and God had spared me. I had this very deep and profound gratitude and a sense of wonder. Sometimes when there is a disaster, people will pray, why me? In an opposite way, I had the same question. Why had I been spared, and what did God have in store for me? You remember when you were 19? You remember when you were 20? Could you have imagined what you would walk through and where would you, you, you would be now in your life? And, and see, even now where we are in life, we're still asking that question. What does God have in store for me for the rest of my life? He has something. He has something planned, as he did for George Herbert Walker Bush when he was just a young boy, young man, doing, a young boy doing a man's job when you're flying in enemy fire. Uh, President Bush goes on and he says, one of the things I realized out there all alone was how much family meant to me. Having faced death and having been given another chance to live, I could see just how important those values and principles were that my parents had instilled in me 
and of course how much I love Barbara, the girl that I knew I would marry. As you grow older and try to restrate and try to retrace the steps that made you the person that you are, the signposts to look for are those special times of insight. I remember my days and nights aboard the Finback as one of those times, maybe the most important of them all. In my own view, there's got to be some kind of destiny, and I was being spared for something on earth. And he was right. God had a plan for George Herbert Walker Bush. But God also had a plan for his son, George W. Bush. If, if God had not have sovereignly worked and spared the life of George H. W. Bush, then George W. Bush would not be president of the United States today. The same is true of King Amaziah, who we're going to study tonight. You recall from last week, um, his father Joash. Amaziah, as we're in Second Chronicles 25 tonight, Amaziah's father Joash was spared as a young boy from the murderous tirade of his grandmother Athaliah who attempted, not only, not only attempted, but who killed all the male heirs, all of her grandchildren, to the throne so that she could take the throne. But unbeknownst to her, a godly couple spared the life of, um, of one of them. His name was Joash. If Joash had not have been spared, Amaziah would not have existed and he would not have taken the throne. So tonight we look at Amaziah. You might take that chart. You might take a look at the chart that uh, you were handed because it, it gives perspective. Um, the chart begins with Jeroboam and with Rehoboam. And obviously Jeroboam is king of the northern kingdom. Uh, Rehoboam, the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, the first three kings were Saul and David and then Solomon, and then you have the split. And we've been slowly working our way through, primarily focusing on the kings of the south. But we've touched on, here and there, some of the kings of the north. Jeroboam, then we focused on Ahab, because Ahab and Jehoshaphat made an alliance that affected the nation for generations. Now tonight we're looking at uh, we're looking at Amaziah. Uh, Amaziah, I, I find a, a very um, what do I say about this guy? When you read when you read the account in Scripture, um, well, let's read the account in Scripture, and then and then you can kind of. Um, Chew on this guy's life for yourself. He, he's, he's somewhat of an enigma. We, we begin reading in Second Chronicles 25. And we read these words in verse 1. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Now go to verse 2. 
What you have in verses 1 and 2, you have a short bio. It's just a short, uh, condensed bio of this guy's life. And verse 2 says, And he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. That is quite a sentence. That's quite a statement. That is um, something that could have been put on his tombstone. They'll put something on your tombstone. Um, what will they put? Somebody's going somebody's gonna to write uh, a line, at least, about your life when you die. That is a great motivating factor in, in how we live every day. When I die, what will my wife have to say about me? When I die, what will my kids have to say about me? When I die, uh, if you have grandkids, what will they have to say about me? You see, that's, uh, it's not so much the obituary that's in the Dallas Morning News that counts. It's the obituary that your family will uh, perhaps write in a journal, but uh, always what they will uh, believe in their heart about you and about how you lived your life. Somebody's going to write something. There's going to be an epitaph somewhere about you. He did right in the sight of the Lord, um, yet not with a whole heart. Uh, when I pray for George Bush, when I pray for George W. Bush, who is now President of the United States, and he's there, as you know, by, by chance. There is no chance, is there? You know, when I look at this chart... What you don't see, you see all these guys, and you see how long they live, and you see how long they served, and you get a brief, um, you, you get a brief compendium of their lives and what they did. Um, uh, you know what's all over this? Uh, are the fingerprints of God. None of this happened by chance. You see, the fact that Joash was spared meant that Amaziah would then be on the throne, and then... You see, there's more to it than what we just see at the immediate time. There's always more to it. The fingerprints of God are all over these kings. The fingerprints of God are all, are all over your life and your family history and what has happened in your family and what will happen in your family. Uh, you say, well, how does that work with my, with my choices and, and my will? Well, no, nobody's really quite figured that out except that you have a will and you have... Uh, an ability to make decisions, and so do I. And what the Scripture says is that it is uh, a good thing to make, to make wise choices and to live according to the Word of God. We know that. How blessed is the man, Psalm 1 says, who doesn't walk in the counsel uh, of the ungodly or sit in the seat of scoffers uh, or stand in the path of sinners. That's not what you want to do. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates both day and night. That's how you live life, if you want to live wisely, if you want to live well. One of the old Puritans uh, made the statement one time, he said, to live well is to live twice. I like that. You know, a lot of people live poorly, and they miss out on what life can be. When you make a series of, of habitual wrong decisions that are counter to God and counter to His world. You're just cutting your own throat. Uh, you're just taking away your own joy. You're taking away the abundant life that Christ would like to give to you. To live well 
is to live twice. Boy, I like that. You want to, what's that line, you know? You you only go around once, you want to squeeze all the gusto. So drink as much beer as you can possibly, you know, get down. And then go vomit, go vomit up and go drink some more. Boy, there's a life. Boy, there's something to look forward to. That's, I mean, that's a waste. You know it's a waste. We all know it's a waste. God tells us how to live. And uh, His sovereign hand, uh, quite frankly, we see this chart that the invisible hand of God and the fingerprints of God are all over this chart. And they're all over your life. Do we make decisions? Yes. Do you want to make the best decisions you can? Yes. Um, just walking in here, met a few guys and just briefly they're talking and there's a discussion about um, one of the guys who's getting married and was thinking about making a career change. So, and his dad was talking to him and a friend. So, so what's going on there? I imagine he's looking for some wisdom. So it's, it's, it's very wise he's talking to his dad. You see? Because it's always smart to talk to someone who's been down the trail, further down the trail than you've been. You see? Because life is a trail. We've talked about this before. Life is a trail, but you've never been down this trail before. Now, are you, are you 26? Well, you've never been down this stretch of trail. You know what it is to be 24, but you've never been 26. So it's smart to talk to someone who's been 26. Maybe a guy who's 46 or 56 or 66 or... See, there's wisdom in talking to someone who's been down a stretch you've never been down before. That's a good thing. That's a wise thing. Um, So we want to make good decisions, you know, about marriage and about career. Scripture says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You make the best decisions you can. And there's an invisible hand behind you, though, that's leading and guiding and directing you that you can't see. Because, you see, you make your best decisions. But, you know, and and is it not true that we make decisions and sometimes they're bad decisions? You bet. Sometimes we make bad decisions just out of stubbornness. Sometimes we make bad decisions just because we missed it. You know what I'm grateful for? I'm grateful that God is sovereign over all my decisions. We all have things we wish we could go back and undo. We all have decisions we wish we could go back and change. Uh, God is sovereign over all of those decisions. And God weaves our mistakes and our failures. He weaves that into his plan. And it doesn't frustrate his plan. That's amazing to me. Did you know you can't frustrate the will of God? You can't do it. Hey, you think you can? Well, who the heck do you think you are? You're not that important. You're not that significant. God's got a plan for the ages. And it's going to happen. And it's going to. Do you think Satan has thwarted the plan of God? I'm telling you he hasn't, because Jesus is the Lamb of God from before the foundation of the world. Before there was sin, Jesus was the Lamb. Have you ever thought about that? Why would he be a Lamb if if there was no sin? Because God knew there was going to be sin. Well, then why did God permit? I don't know. I'm just telling you what it says. But what we tend to do is minimize God and we try to explain it away. You can't explain it away. God is God. God has a will. You ever pray for someone who's stubborn and resistant to Christ? I was talking with a guy today at lunch, and his, uh, this guy's in his 70s, and his brother, who's 10 years older, loves his brother. 
His brother's dying of cancer. I mean, he's, I mean, he's on the last legs. And he has spent weeks with his brother. And as far as he can tell, his, he's shared the gospel and shared the gospel. And his brother doesn't want to hear it. And a pastor that they knew growing up, he's gone to see him twice. Shared the gospel. This, this guy doesn't want to hear it. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's, just, that's just heartbreaking. Uh, we make choices. We make decisions. So then, how do you pray for someone that's resistant? And they don't want to bend their will to the Lord. You know how I pray, pray for them? I said, God, I, I, here's what I do. I said, Lord, would you be so gracious as to go in there and just kick their will in the ground? Just override their free will. We're so big on free will. You know what? Your free will will get you to hell. That's where your free will will get you and will get me. Because the fact of the matter is, our wills, when it comes to God, our wills are not free. They're not. Adam's will was free. But see, sin came into the world, and since Adam, we've all been afflicted with sin. So Jeremiah says the heart is desperately innocent and morally neutral and open to all points of view. It's not what it says. The heart is desperately what? Wicked and sick. Who can know it? And see, the problem with your will is your will is enslaved to your nature. That's why Psalm 14 says there's no one who seeks God. See, we think all these people are seeking. Nobody's seeking God unless the Spirit of God is working in their hearts and lives. You see? Jesus said no man can come unless the Father what? Draws him. But what about their free will? Their free will is not going to choose God. This guy that's dying in the hospital and his brother's praying, I said the way to pray for him is that God would just come in and override his will and pull him to himself. That's how you came to Christ. Yeah, well, Steve, I asked Christ to come in. I know you did. But why did you do that? Because he worked in your will and freed it up. And he worked in your life and he drew you. He opened your blind eyes. Salvation is of the will. No, it isn't. Salvation is of what? The Lord. What does Romans 9 say? It does not depend on the man who wills or the, run, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So we pray that God would be merciful. Was he merciful to you? So do you have friends and loved ones you want to see come to Christ? Just ask him to override their will and be merciful. Just be a God of mercy. Just be a God of mercy. God loves to be merciful. That's not in my notes. How did I get into that? Well, I kind of got into it because Amaziah. This, this, guy, this guy just kind of blows me away. Because, um, well, here's what I call Amaziah. I call Amaziah the half and half king. That's what he was, half and half. Uh, I don't drink a lot of coffee. The only time, I, in fact, I went, um, I went, uh, gosh, uh, probably 30 years of my life, I would drink maybe one cup of coffee a year. Just, and I'm not exaggerating. You can ask my wife, you can ask my kids. I don't like coffee. The only time, if I'm really, really tired, and I need to finish up something, or I need to be alert, I'll take a cup, and I won't drink one cup, I'll drink three or four. Because I need to, I need to get juiced. I need to get... Uh, stimulated and when i drink coffee i mean i'm up for i mean if i drink three cups of coffee i'll be up literally for 24 hours because i don't take that much caffeine normally now the only way i can drink coffee is to take it with half and half 
So if I'm tired, if I make a couple, or I go by Starbucks and I'll say, give me a, give me a, um, a small, which at Starbucks is a tall, which right there you know they're screwed up. <laughs> Who would call a small a tall? But that's what, and then they got the Vente and the <laughs> Macchiato and, hey, you know, a bunch of new age left wing stuff. You know, they're from Seattle. I mean, what do you expect? But anyway, and it's 14 bucks for a cup of coffee. I mean, you know. But I get a, I'll get a small in a big gulp, is what I call it. Give me, I can't remember the name. Give me a small coffee in a big one. Why? In a venti, because I want to load it up with half and half and sweet and low so I won't taste the coffee. I hate coffee. I just want the caffeine. If I could get an IV caffeine drip in my arm, I'd take it. But I got to take the coffee. But see, I can only take coffee with half and half. Amaziah apparently could only take the responsibility of spiritual leadership with half and half. It was too much for him to swallow. The responsibility of being a king under God. You say, what do you mean half and half? This guy, as I look at his life, Half the time he was obedient, and half the time he was disobedient. That was this guy's life. He was a half and half king. His life, as you read his story, this guy's a mixture of obedience and disobedience. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, obedience, disobedience. Um, when Noah preached about what was going to happen... And the doors of the ark closed. Nobody got in halfway. Either get in the ark or you get out. Nobody in the ark was half in and half out. If you're going to get in, get in. If you're not going to get in, get out. There's no halfway. But we're always trying. This is the, the, the method of, of men is to try and find a spiritual compromise. Is to try and find middle ground, spiritually. Uh, there is no middle ground. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Even when you read church history. Uh, in America... You know, the pilgrims came and the Puritans came and they established this nation and uh, set down laws that were based on the Scriptures. There was a time in the history of New England. Now, when you go to New England today, New England is not the Bible Belt. Uh, if you go to New England today, you'll see churches that are used for everything except church. Uh, churches have been turned into theaters. Churches, uh, I read the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks ago, about uh, First Baptist Church somewhere in Boston. First Baptist Church in downtown Boston has been renovated and is now um, a series of condominiums and lofts. That's what it is. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, New England was the uh, spiritual hotbed of our nation in the early years. But then things begin to fall apart because they begin to compromise. Bruce uh, Sheely 
in uh, his book, Church History in Plain Language, talks about the halfway covenant. That's an amazing term. Well, what was the halfway covenant? He says to keep mem- they were losing members because people didn't want to go all the way in their commitment to Christ. He says to keep membership from shrinking drastically, many churches in 1662 had to settle for what they called the halfway covenant. Under this policy, the unawakened or the unsaved could enjoy a kind of partial membership, baptizing their children and joining in congregational activities, but not taking full communion. This was enough church affiliation for most political and social purposes so that gradually the saints sank to a tiny minority, the halfway covenant. And this was a big deal because Jonathan Edwards stood against the halfway covenant. Uh, He said, no, we only take people in the church membership who, on their profession of faith in Jesus Christ, that they know him personally. But see, the halfway covenant is, well, you know, you don't want to, it's it's a little extreme. So they went, what they do? They went halfway. Um, They went half and half. You see, what's half and half? It's half cream and it's half milk. Halfway, half and half is half disobedience and half obedience. You just pick and choose. You become the sovereign. You become God of the Bible. You become the Lord. You call the shots. Uh, It's reverse of what the scripture has to say. Uh, This guy was a half and half king. Let me tell you something about half and half men. Half and half men are double-minded men. That's in James. Why don't you flip over there with me? Half and half equals one, doesn't it? In my mind, you got half and you got half, then you got a whole. So how does half and half equal a double-minded man? I don't know, but it does. In, in James, he talks about the fact that when you're suffering and when you're in difficulty, what you need is that you need wisdom. <coughs> um, let's read verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So if you're going through a hard time right now, what do you need? You need the wisdom of God. Some of you guys are going through a real tough time in your marriage or a tough time in your career. You're unsure. You're trying to figure things out. So what do you need right now? You need wisdom. Well, here's here's the good news. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man... In other words, don't ask God to give you wisdom if you doubt that He will give you wisdom. That doesn't make any sense. If you don't think He'll give you wisdom, then don't ask Him for it. But if you take His word seriously, you can hold up the book of James and say, Lord, you promised. If I need wisdom, I hold up this promise. And Lord, I don't have wisdom, but I believe You'll give me wisdom. You see? I need wisdom for this decision. I need wisdom to tomorrow. When I get up and go into that meeting... Lord, I need your wisdom, and I'm flat out right now. But I pray that when I walk in there, you'll give it to me. What, what, what was it that Jesus said to the disciples? There'll be a time when they'll come and they'll persecute you, and they'll bring you up before the officials. He said, but do not be concerned about what you will say, for it will be given to you in that hour, what you are to say. say I don't have wisdom. Well, you're not in it yet. You don't need the wisdom yet. The minute you need the wisdom, it'll be there if you don't doubt. But the guy who doubts, look at verse 7. 
Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That nails Amaziah. Double-minded men, the primary characteristic of their lives is that they're spiritually unstable. Uh, I use the term uh, double-minded and half and half. They're the same thing. If you're half and half, if you're half disobedience and half obedience, you know what you are? You're unstable. Because you're not walking by faith and you're not walking in obedience. And that's no way to live. And we'll see that out of the life of this guy, um, Amaziah. I don't usually watch David Letterman. I just happened to watch him last night. I'd had some coffee coffee earlier in the afternoon. And uh, I couldn't go to sleep. So I'm flipping around and I'm watching SportsCenter. And I watched SportsCenter three times last night. Uh, and one of the times I'd seen every, I knew every highlight by memory. I, I knew everything. And so I'm flipping around, and there's Letterman, and he says, Welcome, Madonna. I thought, Oh, I got to see this. He had Madonna in his program last night. So Madonna comes in, and they start talking. I'm watching them. And uh, it was really interesting because, you know, Letterman has just had a son this past week uh, with his girlfriend. So they're talking. He's talking with Madonna. And, uh, Suddenly, Madonna starts talking about his son because she's written a new book for children. I sure want my kids to read that. (laughs) My gosh. And so he's asking her about raising kids. I had to watch it. I mean, I couldn't turn it off. this This is unbelievable. So he's asking her about raising kids. And then she says, well, one of the things you need to do is that you need to get married. And the audience kind of went, whoa. He says, she said, because you're not married to this woman, are you? And Letterman, he says, well, well, no, I'm not. And she says, well, you, that's, that's the best thing you can do for this child, for your son, is, is to get married. And, and Letterman, he, he, was, he was speechless. He wasn't quite sure what to say. And, and then they began to talk, and he kind of diverted things. And he said, well, yeah, there are different... You know, things that you got to teach you. I mean, he, he took it another direction, and then she came right back. And, he, and she said, well, you're, you're missing the point, because you asked me. The first thing you need to do is get married, because your son needs to know that you and your wife are committed to one another. This is Madonna talking, you know. And then I didn't tape it, no. But I was too much in shock to, to find a tape. And then Madonna starts talking about the fact that uh, her and her husband are married and they're committed to you. And then he says, well, what do you do about school and all that? Because they've just moved to England. She said, well, I'm sending my daughter to a, uh, uh, to a Catholic school in Ireland. Uh, why are you, Madonna is sending her daughter. She said it's a, it's a, it's a school that's, that's very conservative and it teaches morals and values. And, and, then, and then Letterman starts to recover. And he said, he said, well, that's good. He said, that's good. He says, now, tell me, about this, uh, tell me about this deal with you kissing Britney Spears. Because at the MTV Awards a while back, a couple weeks ago, she kisses Britney Spears on the mouth. He said, so tell me about that. And they could have said, well, tell me about the other book you did on sex, where there was full frontal nudity. Tell me about that. Do they have that in the library at the convent in Ireland? You know, and I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, this is, 
And I'm thinking, you know what this is? This is half and half. This is, uh, this is nuts. This is totally, you know what you've got here? You've got two very visible, wealthy people who are completely unstable and lost. They're just tossed from one wave to the other. Oh, you need to get married. Full frontal nudity. It makes no sense whatsoever. And he said, what about that kiss with Britney Spears? And she said, well, there were different levels to that. It was sort of I was passing the torch to the next generation. He said, the irony of that went right over my head, Madonna. Uh, there was no irony. It was just a lost person. Um, Amaziah was not too far from this. You know, you know, it's possible, guys. It's possible to go to a Bible-teaching church and be half and half. It, it's possible to know the Scriptures. It's possible to go to Bible study fellowship. It's possible to listen to tapes and CDs and all that stuff and listen to KCBI and be a double-minded man. See, it wasn't that Amaziah didn't know the truth. I think Madonna knows the truth. She, she wants her daughter to have morals and values. Hmm. All right, let's look at this guy's life. Let's, 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 now, we're going to go to 3 and 4. Because in verses 1 and 2, we had a short bio. Now in verses 3 and 4, here's what we're going to have. We're going to see a short sprint of obedience. Okay? Let me go back to 2 Chronicles 25. This guy starts out pretty well. Um, verse 3. Now it came about as soon as the kingdom was firmly in his grasp that he killed his servants who had slain his father, the king. If you remember about his father, his father was murdered by two guys. So once he gets the kingdom firmly in his hand, he kills the guys that killed his father because they shouldn't have done that. They had no right to do that. They broke the law. But notice verse 4. However, he did not put their children to death, <clears throat> which, is, which was the custom of kings in that day. You would not only kill the, the father, but you would kill the sons. Because those sons are going to grow up, and you don't want those kids coming after you in 20 years for killing their father. So you just, you just kill them all. However, he did not put their children to death, but did as it is written in the law in the book of Moses. This is referring to Deuteronomy 24.16 here. Which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for sons, nor sons put to death for fathers, for each shall be put to death for his own sin. Uh, Amaziah followed the word of God. Right out of the blocks, the first significant step that he takes is to bring justice to those who killed his father. He did not overstep the Scripture. He obeyed the Scripture. And at first blush, it looks like we got a man here that's going to be a man who is going to obey the Lord and follow his word. That's sure what it looks like. But it was a short sprint of obedience. Now, we're going to start to look at the real nature and character towards God and money. I'll give it to you one more time. Amaziah was half and half towards God and money. What did Jesus say about money? Jesus said, you cannot love God and mammon, which is money. Uh, you got to love one or you got to love the other. But no man can serve two masters. Uh, your master is either the Lord, or your master is, is money. Now, does that mean that God does not provide for the needs of those 
whose God is the Lord? No, he does provide. He does take care. Um, and there are some Christians that have been given great wealth and have used that wealth uh, wisely and they've used it to the glory of God and they're givers. And it seems as though they just keep getting more and more, which makes total sense because the Scripture says, given it shall be given unto you. God can entrust these people with money because God knows that money doesn't grip their heart. Money doesn't have a hold of them. They hold money loosely. Uh, money is a tool to do the work of the Lord. It, it's a tool to, to do kingdom business. So they have passed the test in their hearts. Uh, God can entrust money to them because they know God knows that He's number one in their hearts and in their lives. He was half and half towards God and money. Let's pick up verse 5 down through 10. Moreover, Amaziah assembled Judah and appointed them according to their father's households under commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds throughout Judah and Benjamin. Remember the southern kingdom? Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And he took a census of those from 20 years old and upward, and he found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war and handle spear and shield. Now this is interesting because he compromises in verse 6. He hired also a hundred... So how many in his army? 300,000. He hired also 100,000 valiant war, warriors out of Israel for 100 talents of silver. So he goes up north to the northern kingdom and he gets 100,000 guys and he pays them. These are mercenaries that he's going to hire to go to war with him and to go to battle with him. Verse 7. But a man of God came to him saying... Who's this man of God? He's a prophet. Is it not true that every king we've looked at, there's been a prophet for the king who tells it straight, who throws fastballs high and inside of truth? That the king, nobody, if you're in the batter's box, nobody likes fastballs high and inside. But sometimes they've got to come high and inside to save your life spiritually. Uh, because you start crowding too close to the plate of disobedience. You see? That's a pretty good metaphor. I just made it up. Standing here. I'd like to soak it for more, but I don't think there's anything left. Um, so the prophet, verse 7, a man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. Those 100,000 guys you just hired and paid, and by the way, the, he hired them for 100 talents of silver. That was 6,600 pounds of silver. He laid out some bucks. Man of God came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, nor with any of the sons of Ephraim from the northern kingdom. But if you do go, do it, be strong for the battle. In other words, if you take these guys, yet God will bring you down before the enemy, for God has power to help and to bring down. In other words, what he's saying is, you can go fight with these guys and take them, but God will not go with you. God is against you. He doesn't want you allied with the northern kingdom. Now look at this guy's response. Verse 9. And Amaziah said to the man of God, and this is classic, but what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? What's the first thing that's on this guy's mind? Money. What am I going to say to my CPA? What about, what about my net worth? Wait a minute. You're telling me these 100,000 guys, I already paid them 6,600 pounds of silver. I'm not supposed to go with them. Okay, but what about the money that I've already paid? 
This is classic. And the man of God answered, The Lord has much more to give to you than this. Man, that's good stuff. I like what Warren Wearsby. Wearsby has a, he's got a great, if I can find it, what did I do with Wearsby? He's got a, uh, he's got a great comment on this verse. <coughs> Wearsby says this, Instead of trusting God for victory, he hired men from Israel. Then he worried about the money he would lose if he obeyed the Lord. See, the issue before him wasn't immediate obedience, it's what about the money? How am I going to make up that money? But what a great line. The Lord has much more to give to you than this. Uh, Wiersbe goes on and says, Once you start measuring obedience by profit and loss, you are not living by faith. In other words, when you start measuring, if I'll obey, depending on how much it cost me, you're not walking the way you ought to be walking. You're half and half. He goes on and says, um, Amaziah argued with God's will, but finally obeyed it. And that's what happened. Let's read the rest of the verse. It says, Then Amaziah dismissed them, the troops which came to him from Ephraim, to go home. So they had the money, and he went ahead and told them, You guys are done, you're finished, I don't need you. So their anger burned against Judah, and they returned home in fierce anger. Now why did they return? Why was that a big deal? I mean, they took this guy for 6,600 pounds of silver. Well, because money was an issue in their lives, because when you were a mercenary, not only did you get paid what you got up front, but you got a cut of the spoils. To the victor goes the what? Spoils. That was part of the deals. These guys worked on a down payment, but they also worked on commission. And they, I mean, hey, it's true. It's just how they did it. And, and you know what? They knew they had an opportunity to make some real bucks and to get ahead here, and they were hacked off. They had to go back home, and quite frankly, they were humiliated that the king didn't want them. Um, but the real issue for them was the money. Um, I mean, they were fiercely angry. Then I and Isaiah dismissed them, the troops which came to him from Ephraim, to go home. Now, we're going to come back to this. Note now, okay? Uh, we're going to circle back on this one. I want to give you the second thing about Amaziah in the text that shows his heart of being half and half. That's in verses 11 through 15. Amaziah was half and half towards God and idols. So what was the first one? He was half and half towards God and money. Now he's going to be half and half towards God and idols. This is unbelievable. This is like Madonna talking to Letterman about marriage and then publishing a book on sex with her being completely nude. This is nuts. This guy's behavior is going to get real unstable. Now, Amaziah strengthened himself and led his people forth, and they went to the Valley of Salt. This is probably down south of the Dead Sea in Israel. The Dead Sea, there's more salt in the Dead Sea than any other body of water in the face of the earth. You can literally float on your back in the Dead Sea. Nothing can live in the Dead Sea because of the salt content. Uh, and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 of the sons of Seir. The sons of Judah also captured 10,000 alive and brought them to the top of the cliff and threw them down from the top of the cliff so that they were all dashed to pieces. Pretty brutal. But the troops whom Amaziah sent back from going with him to battle. So who are these guys? These are the 100,000 guys that went back. Okay, 
So he's fighting down in the south the battle without these guys. Well, these guys are up in the north because he sent them home. But the troops whom Amaziah sent back from going with him to battle raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 of them and plundered much spoil. They were going to get their money one way or the other. So he's down there fighting these guys and he wins because he listens to the voice of the prophet. All right. Now, verse 15 is what's amazing. Here's the instability. Then the anger of the Lord... No, no, I missed 14. 14 is the instability. Now it came about after Amaziah came from slaughtering the Edomites, that's down there by the Dead Sea, that he brought the gods of the sons of Seir, set them up as his gods, bowed down before them, and burned incense to them. I mean, you talk about an idiot. You talk about a fool. He goes down. God gives him the victory. He takes their idols, brings the idols back, and worships the idols. I mean, is that, I mean, you're almost speechless. What, what was this guy thinking? He wasn't thinking. So once again, the prophet shows up. Uh, well, we don't know if it's the same prophet, but it's a prophet. Verse 15. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet who said, by the way, neither one of these prophets here, um, I don't see that we know their names. Do you? You ever, you ever wish that people knew who you were? You ever wish that you had more visibility? You ever wish that you had more um, just uh, a higher profile? You know, you don't need that. That stuff's overrated. Uh, I mean, who needs that? Uh, you know, all you need, guys, is just to be under the mercy. You need, uh, what does the New Testament say? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Yeah, that, that stuff's all overrated, they tell me. You know? What, uh, we don't know these guys, but I'll tell you what, God knows these guys. So this prophet shows up. The anger of the Lord burns against Amaziah. He sent a prophet to him who said, Why? This is a great question. Why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? That's a brilliant question. All right, so let me get this straight. You went down and beat these guys, and you got their idols, and you're praying to the idols who couldn't even deliver their own people. Do you see when you're half and half? Do you see when you're double-minded how unstable it makes you? You see how foolish it makes you? All right, now we got another one. About this guy's half and half behavior, Amaziah. Here's the third one. I'm looking at my watch. Let me back up before I give you number three. Let me back up. Let's talk about idols in our day. There are idols in our culture. Um, 
You remember when in Daniel, king set up a big golden idol? He said everybody's to bow down and pray to the idol. And if you don't, there's a fiery furnace. Well, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down. And uh, the king got upset. And you know the story. There are idols in our day. And I want to see what happened. What happened to these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Was that they were living in a culture where the idols, uh, the idols and those who believed in them were in authority. And if they didn't bow, there were severe repercussions. One of the things that's happening in our culture, gentlemen, is that uh, homosexuality is becoming an idol in our culture. It's becoming uh, very, very powerful. Uh, and, and those in authority are more and more becoming increasingly committed to it. Uh, this week in Christianity Today, it was reported, I'm going to read this uh, from uh, November 11th, 2003, from the website of Christianity Today. Yesterday, Weblog, which is the name of this Christianity Today website, Weblog reported that the Chester, England police were investigating Reverend Peter Forster, who was Bishop of Chester, for saying that homosexuals can reorientate themselves. Uh, and I've got the original article. What this bishop said is that it's possible for homosexuals to change because homosexuality is not genetic. Homosexuality is an issue of the human heart. Just as a guy who is a heterosexual adulterer can change when Christ comes into his heart, so someone involved in homosexual activity can change when Christ comes into their heart, they can be reoriented, is what he was saying. So what happens is the police chief begins an investigation of him for saying that in public. Um, this is amazing. Uh, Forster, the bishop, had told the Chester Chronicle, some people who are primarily homosexual can reorientate, reorientate themselves, and he goes on and talks about that. And then the article goes on and states, it looks as though the bishop did not commit a hate crime, and, and what's happened is they decided not to press charges on him. It looks as though the bishop did not commit a hate crime only because there are no laws prohibiting inciting hatred against the gay community. Although it is illegal to incite racial hatred, there is at present no equivalent ban on inciting hatred against the lesbian and gay community, says the Chester Chronicle. And then it goes on. And Can you believe that? To say that a homosexual can change by the power of Christ is almost a hate crime in England. But the law doesn't specifically say that. I bet you someone's going to change the law. And it already is in Canada, by the way. And by the way, it's coming here. Oh, and by the way, the article right underneath it, catch this. Last week, Weblog reported that a Colorado judge forbade Dr. Cheryl Clark from exposing her child to anything that might be considered homophobic. Yesterday, the Washington Times reported he, meaning the judge, specifically meant focus on the family and promise keepers materials. 
The Washington Times says it was those materials that prompted a Denver judge to forbid Dr. Clark from exposing her daughter to anything that can be considered homophobic. This is a woman that was living in a lesbian relationship, this Dr. Clark, apparently, and came to know Christ. And um, the woman she was living with has brought charges, and, and so the judge forbade her from using family, focus on the family materials or promise keeper materials because they're homophobic. Um, yeah. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? Situational, sociological, law, Francis Schaeffer, the elite that have become a dictatorship. Uh, one professor says, uh, it seems way beyond the authority of a court to attempt to control the content of religious instruction or the lack thereof. Of course it does. But we've lost our minds. Homosexuality, the practice of it, and that is genetic, has become an idol. <clears throat> Back in 1918, 1919, you know, you got chaos going on in Russia, and the Bolsheviks are raising, you know, the Bolsheviks were murderers. They were rapists. They were unbelievably wicked. They had smuggled out pictures of what the Bolsheviks were doing, and they gave them the Churchill. What happened was the prime minister was considering making an alliance with the Bolsheviks for political reasons, and Churchill couldn't believe it. You know what Churchill said? This was so outside his context. This, this was so irrational to him. He said, he said, if you're going to align with the Bolsheviks, and I've got it right here in his biography, if you're going to align with the Bolsheviks, you, 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 might, as well, you might as well make sodomy legal. Well, we have. But back then, that was the further, I mean, that... that that was the, the, the most irrational thing that he could imagine. So where are we? Oh, we've just done it. Why? Because homosexuality has become an idol in our culture. I feel like I talked about this last week, so, but it's not going away. You know? I think last week I said it's been convenient for 200 years to be a Christian in this country. But do you see how it's getting inconvenient? You see? Before long, some of us are going to be making choices like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It might be a while before we're looking at fiery furnaces, but we're sure going to look at some repercussions. You see? And then when that comes up, you've got to decide if you're going to be half and half or if you're going to stand on the truth. You guys still with me? Yeah. This isn't a Robert Schuller pep talk tonight, is it? But it's just reality. It's just what's going on. Um, I think I got one more for you here. I know I do. Number three was he was half-hearted. That's not right. He was half and half towards the prophets of God. Um, do you remember back in verses seven through nine, the prophet says, "Hey, you can't you can't get these guys. You can't go to battle with these guys." So what did he do? He obeyed. Right? You've got to give him credit. He obeyed. He sent him home. Um, but in verse 16, now the prophet shows up because he's worshiping these idols. And it came about as he was talking with him, meaning the prophet, that the king said to him, have we appointed you a royal counselor? Well, see, what happened was these kings, like Ahab, hired his own prophets to tell him what he wanted to hear. 
Apparently, this guy did the same. He says, wait a minute. Are you on the payroll? Are, are you a prophet that we've hired? Stop. Well, see, no, this guy wasn't on his payroll. This guy was concerned about just declaring the truth, the truth of the Lord. Uh, so, you see, before, just, just weeks before, perhaps, he'd obey the prophet. Now what he's doing is he's questioning the prophet's authority and attempting to intimidate the prophet. He says, why should you be struck down? Then the prophet stopped and said, I know, and I love this prophet because he doesn't back up. He just stands there and tells the truth. I know that God has planned to destroy you because you have done this, what? Worshipped idols and have not listened to my counsel. So this guy was half and half when it came to the prophets. He was half and half concerning the word of the Lord. Let me ask you something. When you hear something or read something in the Scripture, what do you do with it? You have to obey it. You don't have any option. Oh, you, you have an option, but it's not one you want to you take. Uh, see, guys, this is the Christian life. This is the journey that we're on. Uh, God is forever testing His men. He tests our obedience. Have you noticed this? He tests our integrity. He tests our truthfulness. He tests our purity. He's continually testing his men. Continually. Because he wants to see what's in our heart. Uh, let me give you the last one. He was half and half in fighting two wars. Now we saw the first war that he fought down by the Valley of the Salt. But in verses, um, uh, where am I here? I'm looking, I'm, I'm, in verses 17 down through 24, he now decides, and this is how unstable this guy is, he now decides that he's going to go fight another war, and he's going to go fight it with the northern kingdom. Why is he going to fight it? Because the guys that he sent home killed 3,000 of his people and took the spoil. So now he decides, well, I'm going to go fight them. I'm going to go fight the northern kingdom. What's amazing is that the king of the north, who's all screwed up, has more wisdom than this guy does. Verse 17. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, not his father Joash, another Joash, whose name was also Jehoash. You can check that out in 2 Kings 13, verses 10 and 12. You say, how does that work? Well, some of you guys, how many of you guys, your name, how many, anybody here named William? Anybody? We got any Williams here? I'm not setting you up. We got some Williams. Are you also known as Bill? Well, then you got Joe Ash and Jehoiash. You see what I'm saying? There's next, anyway, I, you say, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, it makes all kinds of sense. And Joash, the king of Israel, I'm in 18, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah. Oh, I, I missed 17. Basically, what he does, he contacts the guy in the north and says, come, let us face each other. Other, he wants to go to war. And Joash, the king of Israel, or Jehoash, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, and this is great, he's going to tell him a parable. The thorn bush, which was in Lebanon, sent to the cedar which was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. But there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trampled the thorn bush. What this guy is saying is, Hey, you're a little thistle, and I'm a big cedar, and you don't want to take me on, because you'll get, you'll get pummeled. Verse 19, You said, Behold, you have defeated Edom, and your heart has become proud. This is this wicked king in the north speaking to this guy. Your heart has become proud and boasting. Now stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble that you, even you, should fall and Judah with you? 
But Amaziah would not listen, for it was from God that he might deliver them into the hand of Joash because they had sought the gods of Edom. This was a punishment. This guy, he was now full of himself. He wasn't listening to the prophets. God was going to punish him. He made a choice that he wanted. Now here's where Will comes in. He made a choice that he wanted to go fight the northern kingdom. You see? That was, that's what he wanted to do. But if you look at verse 20, Amaziah would not listen for it was from God. So see, there you see the will of God. If you want to continue in disobedience, you know what God will do? He'll just let you continue in disobedience. So the king, Joash, I'm 21, king of Israel went up. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh, which belonged to Judah. And Judah, Amaziah's country, was defeated by Israel. They fled each to his tent. Then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, and brought him to Jerusalem, tore down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. He took all the gold and silver, all the utensils, which were found in the house of God at Obed-Edom, and the treasures of the king's house, the hostages also, and returned to Samaria. See, the first battle this guy fought, here's what I want you to know about these two battles. In the first battle, in verses 5 to 10, he went to war with God. In the second battle, he goes to war against God. Why? Because he was half and half. He was obedient, then he was disobedient. So how does this guy end? 26. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, from first to last, behold, are they not written in the book of kings of Judah and Israel? By the way, if you look at 25, Amaziah lived 15 years after the death of Joash. So he continued on after this defeat. Verse 27, And from that time Amaziah turned away from following the Lord. They conspired against him in... Let me read that again. And from the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they conspired against him in Jerusalem. He fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. Then they brought him on horses and buried him with his fathers in the city of Judah. Um, this is a sad story. And, and you know what's really sad to me? It's, it's completely unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. Um, what was the word in verse 3 about this guy, Amaziah? Actually in verse 2, And he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Um, There's an old song that we used to sing when I was a kid. Um, all he wants is you. No one else will do. Not just a part. He wants all of your heart. All he wants is you. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Hey guys, let me ask you something. How many of you guys want to wind up like this guy? Obviously nobody. So let's learn from his life. Let's glean the lessons. Let's put them into our hearts. Let's put them in our mind. And you know what? Let's get ruthless with ourselves. In, in, in taking the scripture and asking God to give us wisdom. Let's pray. Father, as we close, we're going to do a little bit of diagnosis here. We go in to see a doctor. He looks at our hearts. He might do an EKG. 
They might do an MRI. They look at the feedback. They look at the information. And then they diagnose. But Lord, before you tonight, we want to diagnose our hearts. We don't want to end up like this guy. Uh, Lord, when we take the wrong road, when we take the wrong, wrong path, it leads to destruction. Uh, we've all done that in the past. But Lord, we, we want to be mature men. We want to be wise men. We want to learn from the mistakes that we have made, and we want to learn from the mistakes of others that are recorded in the Scripture. I, I pray, Lord, for each one of us here that you would give us the wisdom to do what's right regardless of the cost. Lord, it's amazing to me how whenever I'm studying the Scripture, something comes up in my life that is the exact issue that I'm studying. And Lord, you know what that issue was yesterday. And just as Amaziah had to think about what it would cost him, once again, I had to think what it would cost me. And Lord, that came up a few weeks ago. But here in a different context, in a different way, it was the same issue. Lord, you keep testing us. You keep testing me. You want to see what's in our hearts. You want to see what we're made of. Because you want to use us, but you want to see if you can trust us. Sometimes, Lord, we get frustrated because we don't sense that you're using us in the way that we would like. Perhaps it's because we're not passing the test that you want us to test, that you want us to pass. So, Lord, we diagnose, we look into our hearts to see if there be any hurtful way in us that's not pleasing to you. Lord, thank you for your mercy and for your kindness and for your grace that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. We live on that grace. We live on that mercy. We count on it in Jesus' name. Amen.